So Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6 and verse number 12 is going to be our text for this morning. And, and the author of Hebrews, who I'm referring to as the preacher, does something that's just ingenious rhetorically here. Last week, where we studied in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, he ended this way. And he was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He cites this name, Melchizedek, which creates such curiosity. There's such intrigue about the name. He, he arouses our curiosity. And just when the audience is leaned in and listening intently to learn about this mysterious, intrigue-laden character, Melchizedek, he drifts off to something that's more pressing than understanding Melchizedek and keeps them on the edge of their seats until later in chapter 6 and into chapter number 7. So if you've been following along in our study and you were anxious to learn about Melchizedek this morning, you will be disappointed. But I have something to share with you that is perhaps more pressing than our understanding of this mysterious character, Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse number 11. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 11. With regards to Melchizedek, here's how the text begins. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you've become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For ground that has drunk the rain that has often fallen on it and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. Even though we're speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed his name when you serve the saints and you continue to serve them. Now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Now, often this passage is cast as one that is especially difficult to understand. And I will acknowledge there are some challenges in interpretation here. But seeing the passage in its intended context can be really beneficial in understanding the passage in a much clearer way. That context is established for us 
in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And if you'll read along this morning our passage in light of that context provided in Hebrews 3, you might be amazed at how clearly this passage speaks to us. Back in chapter 3 and verse 7, this is what the Bible says. It's a quote from the Old Testament, and it's expounded on in chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they've not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Psalm 95, quoted in Hebrews 3, is a very succinct summary of the experiences of the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness. God had brought them out of their Egyptian bondage and slavery and set them on a course headed toward a land that flowed with milk and honey, the, the promised land. But along the way, the people of Israel rebelled against God. And because of their rebellion, God declared they would not enter the promised rest. Hebrews 3 makes it clear it was because of their unbelief they did not enter that rest. Because of their unbelief. Not that they had believed in the beginning and somehow along the way tailed off, but that along the way there was never a point in time when they truly entrusted their well-being to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That passage becomes relevant for the church contemporary to the book of Hebrews and relevant for us today in that there are many members, those who attend or enjoy fellowship with the church, who although in close proximity to all that God has done, they have witnessed firsthand God move in the lives of those around them. Perhaps God move in their church as a whole. In spite of their nearness to the work of God, they have themselves never personally been touched by the power of the gospel. The word of warning is for Israel as it is for the church. Your unbelief will prevent you from entering into the rest, namely heaven, that God has afforded us access to through the shed blood of his only son. Look to verse 11. The Bible says here we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you've become too lazy to understand. The passage begins with a very severe tone. You'll be encouraged to note that there's a degree of comfort and optimism at the conclusion of our passage. Verse 12, the Bible says, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. The problem for the people behind the audience of Hebrews and the problem in the present day church as well is immaturity. Immaturity expresses itself in a couple of different ways. There, there may be true believers. Maybe they've been believers for five days. Maybe they've been believers for 50 years, but they remain in a state of infancy. 
Maybe for those who've been following Christ or have been in a state of salvation for a long time without maturing, without growing in grace, maybe there's been a lack of effort or a lack of discipline on their part. Maybe there's been a lack of investment by others in their lives. But for whatever reasons, given some obstacle or obstacles, there's been a slowness about their growth. They remain in a state of infancy. And then there are those who, in spite of their nearness to the work of God, in spite of their awareness of the message of the gospel, in spite of their understanding of the things of God, they remain unconverted. Perhaps they are intellectually convinced, but they have never embraced the gospel with all of their heart. They've never truly received Jesus. In the language we use almost customarily, they have a head knowledge of the gospel without a heart knowledge of the gospel. In both cases, that is described here, expressed as immaturity. And the church is being called to move beyond that place of immaturity. For those who are believers in a position of infancy, to grow in grace and knowledge. For those who have an intellectual understanding of the gospel, but have yet to entrust their soul to Jesus, to humbly bow the knee, and to make themselves subject to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. The Bible says here you need milk and not solid food. Typically when we look at these passages, this is the way I hear people respond to this. What we need in order to move toward maturity is more information. In other words, we need a Bible study to help us to understand the complexities of the gospel or maybe some deep or mysterious doctrine in the Bible. And I'm the doctrine guy. I'd be the first to affirm we need to understand all that we can understand about the Bible. I've given my life for the last 20 years to understanding all I can understand about the Bible. But I would submit to you that the problem for most Christians, especially American Christians, is not an absence of information, it's an absence of application with regards to the Word of God. It's not as apparent in this particular passage, but in most texts in the New Testament where the church is chastised for its immaturity, it's not about a lack of information, it's about a lack of application. For instance, in James chapter 1, the Bible says, let us not be hearers of the word only, but doers also. The context for that passage suggests that the church knows what they need to know. The problem is they're not doing what they need to do. And here's the trick. You'll be amazed at how the mysteries of the Scripture are open before you as you labor in your daily life to do what you clearly understand from the Bible. If you strive to love God and to love your neighbor, you'll be amazed at how what has been mysterious before is laid bare before you as the Spirit leads in your reading and study of God's Word. What most of us need is not another series of Bible studies, but a heartfelt commitment to do this day and every day to come what we have clearly understood God's Word instructing us to do. Not only to heed its commands, but to cherish its promises. To treasure Jesus in our heart above all else that Christ would have preeminence over all things. Look to chapter 6 and verse number 1. Here the Bible says, Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, 
and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. So what's being described here in our passage? I'm, I'm trying this morning to strike the delicate balance between providing enough detail and information to allow you to follow along without completely putting you to sleep, right? So we have here a call to leave behind the elementary doctrines of Christ. Let's address this word by word here. Leaving the elementary message about the Messiah is a little forceful in my estimation as a translation. The idea here is not that we would leave behind with force the elementary doctrines of Christ. The idea here is that we build upon the foundation of the elementary doctrines of Christ. We never advance away from the elementary doctrines of Christ. We advance in the elementary doctrines of Christ. And we have other New Testament texts that verify this idea. The Apostle Paul preaching to the Corinthian church says in 1 Corinthians 1, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I wanted to keep the basic framework of the gospel the main priority in my ministry because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is our only hope and source of salvation. We never advance from the elementary doctrines of Christ. We advance in them. Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity. I, I even think that the language of maturity and immaturity can be sort of an impediment in our understanding of this passage. When we think maturity, we think about growing up, blossoming, coming to age, those sorts of things. But here, it's the idea of perfection in contrast to imperfection. Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to perfection. That is, let us come away from the imperfection of your former religious system. Come away from the imperfections of your former way of life and go on to perfection in Christ where perfection is found exclusively. Come on to perfection in Christ. Come away from a mere intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel and embrace Jesus with all of your heart and soul and mind. Leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now here's the rub among New Testament scholars. There are some that think that we should read leaving behind the elementary doctrines with the kind of force that I've opposed. In other words, they see that as a complete leaving behind and this list of foundations here as Jewish in nature. I understand these to be descriptions of certain Christian doctrines. And the reason they bear a certain Jewish appearance is because the book of Hebrews is written to a first century Jewish audience. It may also be an indication that they're casting their Christian doctrine in the language of their Jewish experience, seeking to soften the transition from their old covenant way of life now to their new covenant way of living in Jesus. Come away from these foundational doctrines means not to walk away from them entirely, but to advance upon them. And verse 3 says, we will do this if God permits. May the Lord permit. Verse 4, for it is 
impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. The idea of enlightenment here, yes, is about knowledge, becoming aware of something, but it also carries with this sort of allusion to light in the visible sense. Now, once enlightened is not a reference to someone coming to full faith in Jesus Christ. It's about their being made aware. For instance, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he's doing ministry in the region of Galilee, and the Bible says that all Galilee saw the light. It doesn't mean that all Galilee came to faith. In fact, we know that's not the case. It simply means that by experience, with their eyes, they visibly saw Jesus. There was a close and personal encounter with the power of God. They saw the light in that sense. Now, because of the way the sentence is structured here in its Greek text, we may read verses 4 and 5 this way. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who once tasted the heavenly gift, who once became companions with the Holy Spirit, who once tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. Now, at one point in time, all of these experiences were experienced by the people of Israel. And the language here in verses 4 through 6 is specifically chosen to allude to the experiences of Israel. For instance, the idea of enlightenment is a subtle allusion to that pillar of fire that was provided the nation of Israel by night for their protection. They were literally enlightened. The language of tasting of the goodness of God and the power of his word is a subtle allusion to the tasting of bread from heaven in the experience of the nation of Israel. They ate manna from God. They drank water from the rock. All of their physical needs were met by God. They tasted the heavenly gift in a literal way. They became companions with the Holy Spirit. It's a way of giving expression to the fact that they were encountering the work of God's power in the wilderness. God going before them in the most powerful and visible and audible of ways. God was in their midst. It's relevant to Israel's experience. It's relevant to the experience of those in contemporary to the book of Hebrews in that there were many who were in attendance in the church who were a part of the fellowship of the church who had experiences that paralleled that of Israel as well. They had witnessed the power of God's Spirit at work around them with regards to tasting the heavenly gift, maybe even in the fellowship of the church they had occasion to share in and to celebrate in the communion table and the breaking of bread and the drinking of a cup in remembrance of the broken body and shed blood from Jesus. They had experiences that paralleled that of Israel. And they're now in danger of concluding that experience in the same disastrous way that wilderness generation concluded their experience. In close proximity to God's power, but never truly believing, therefore never entering the rest God had afforded them. There's a word of warning for the church. For all of my ministry, I've heard preachers say things like this. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. You don't have to be a member of the church to be saved. You don't have to have good morals or values to be saved. And there's, there's truth in each of those statements. But it seemed to me all along to be counterproductive to make such statements. What we might ought to be saying, rather, is on the opposite. 
you can be baptized and perish in a sinner's hell. You can be a member of the church and perish in a sinner's hell. You can, be, you can participate in the Lord's Supper. You can have good morals and good values and apart from saving faith in Jesus, perish in a sinner's hell. That's precisely what's being described in our passage. Don't confuse your nearness to the work of God with salvation in Jesus Christ. You may encounter that up close and personal. But until your heart has been touched, until you have been truly changed in surrender to Jesus, salvation is as far away as it was in the beginning. There's a word of warning here, for it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened and who have fallen away. This idea of being impossible to renew to repentance is troubling, right? There's a severity of tone about what's stated here. But you've perhaps experienced this in your personal life. Maybe you knew someone who for a season in life were committed to the things of Jesus. Maybe they grew up in church, but over the course of time they just drifted away. Or or maybe there was an even more decisive moment of turning away. And in the language of our day, they deconstructed. Or they became ex-evangelicals, our former Christians. By the way, there are no former Christians. They're just those who never were Christians in the first place. And and what you've experienced in in their examples is that those who have been so exposed to the gospel but have made a conscious decision to turn away from the gospel, they become especially difficult to reach. It becomes practically impossible to overcome the hardness of their heart and to see their heart laid open to receive the gift of the gospel. Our hearts harden and we become callous with more and more and more exposure to the gospel in the absence of our committing ourselves to Jesus in faith. Present discussions about vaccines provide an extraordinary illustration of how this works. By the way, there'll be no declaration from Brother Wade or from this pulpit on vaccines anytime soon. I'll save all that for Facebook. Do you understand how vaccines work in the traditional sense, right? The shot is intended to give you just enough of the virus to generate within your immune system a resistance to the power or the effectiveness of the virus in the future. And there are scores and scores and scores of people whose names are on the rolls of Southern Baptist churches who have allowed themselves just enough gospel to inoculate themselves against the saving power of Jesus Christ. That's the dreadful truth. And that is precisely what is being described in our passage when the Bible says it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened and who have fallen away. Verse 6 continues explaining they are falling away. The Bible says here they have fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. In, in essence, if I could just put this on the bottom shelf in plain language, this passage is about the danger of playing games with Jesus. And, and, and some of you are trifling with the gospel, toying around with the Bible, satisfied or soothing your consciences because you have a certain degree of information when your hearts are far from God. There's danger there. There's danger there. 
there's a callus that's being created on your heart. And the longer you allow yourself exposure to the gospel without surrendering in faith to the lordship of Jesus, the deeper and darker and harder your callus becomes. The greater the difficulty of that hardness being pierced by the power of the gospel. Lest anyone leave fearful that you've now become the impossible scenario, I want us to take note of a certain change that's taking place in our passage. Now this is the point in the passage where the preacher says things that excite him but are of very little interest to the rest of the congregation. But if you'll hang in, there is point to this little rabbit trail, right? There is a tense change that takes place in the Greek text of verse number 6. The verb tense shifts to a present tense, which is not like the present tense in the English language communicating present time. It's about communicating the continual nature of the verb. In other words, the verb itself or the participle in this case is a continuing action so that we might read verse 6 this way. And who have fallen away because to their own harm as long as they are re-crucifying the Son of God and as long as they are holding him up to contempt. In other words, as long as you are re-crucifying the Son of God by your actions, by your behavior, by your thoughts, by what you've given priority in your life. As long as you are holding Jesus up to contempt by being satisfied with a head knowledge of the gospel with no heartfelt devotion, as long as you are treating Christ with contempt, it is impossible that you would be saved from your sins. The only way, the only way, the only way to overcome, to find forgiveness for the way you have treated Christ with contempt is to make repentance and entrust your soul to Christ eternally. For the ground that has drunk the rain, verse 7 says, and that has often fallen on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. Verses 7 and 8 really provide an illustration to explain what has been communicated in verses 4 through 6. Now, it may be challenging in verses 4 through 6, but it couldn't be any more straightforward than in verses 8 and 9. What's said in this illustration is the same as what Jesus says in the parable of the sowers in Matthew chapter 13. Many of you will remember just that parable. Jesus says the farmer goes about and he's sowing seed. And in this parable, the seed is the gospel, the message of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. The farmer sows the seed of the gospel. And as he sows the seed, it falls on one of four types of soil. The first kind is referred to as the wayside. It's where you travel to and from the field. It's where the equipment might pass and the hard grows, the, the ground grows hard and, and firm and the seed doesn't penetrate the soil. So the birds come and they devour the seed. They carry it away quickly. It never springs up. It never has root. Very quickly, the devil takes away the seed of the gospel. There's a, a second kind of soil that the seed might fall on. It's stony ground. It's good ground, but it's stony ground, and so in the beginning, the seed springs forth. There might be excitement about what that seed might produce in the future, in the early phases of its growth, but very quickly, because of the nature of the soil, there's no depth of root, and the sun burns up that particular plant. 
The third kind is the, the, the soil that has thorns and thistles. The seed is sown there, it may spring up, but the thorns and thistles, the cares, the sins, the concerns of this world very quickly choke out its life. What's being described in verses 4 through 6 is the kind of seed that's sown on that stony ground without root depth and that ground that's covered with thorns and thistles where life cannot exist alongside such sin and otherworldly cares. Verse 9 is where an optimistic conclusion to our passage begins. Even though we're speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed his name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. Now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Notice what the preacher does here. Even for those he's confident in who are manifesting the fruit of regeneration and repentance in their life, he warns them, he cautions them, do not play games with Jesus. Do not toy around with the gospel. And then he closes here with some encouragement, with some optimism about what the future holds for them, calling them to press on for the final realization of their hope. Early in my ministry, there, there, there really are a, a good number of guys in my generation. I'm 39, so I'm not like 100 yet, but I'm not as young as I used to be, right? And I'm holding on to 30s with both hands and, and for my life, right? But in my, in my generation, there's sort of these guys who very early on, even late 20s, early 30s, kind of were catapulted to the, to the front, you know, for their preaching ability. And God has worked in their ministries in some powerful ways. And I can just remember being a, a really young minister in my first full-time church at barely 25 and just being enthralled with that. You, know, you want to see God work in those kinds of ways in your ministry. There's an eloquence and an ability to communicate. There's just power there, right? There's, there's real power. But now, 16 years into this thing, serving that long, having served that long, I am far more infatuated with the 80 or 90-year-old bivocational pastor who is proving faithful in the last days of his ministry than the guy with the great big pulpit. Early in my ministry, when I would read the headline of the late, latest pastor scandal, someone who had fallen or made an immoral decision, I would often wag my finger and wonder how anyone could be so foolish. Now, 20 years a follower of Jesus, I am far more inclined to say, but for the grace of God, go I. Brothers and sisters, I don't care if you've been at this thing for five minutes or 50 years. It ought to be our heart's desire to bleed our last drop of life's blood, to breathe our last earthly breath, running our race well to the glory and honor and praise of Jesus. And if you don't think you have the capacity to fall, you've got another thing coming. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride always goes before the fall. 
Brothers and sisters, our dream ought to be finishing the course that has been set before us with honor and nobility and dignity and in righteousness to the glory and the praise of the one who bled and died for us. So for those of you who may find yourself in a place of immaturity, maybe because you're a believer but you've just not been passionate in your pursuit of discipleship, or maybe you've lacked investment from other brothers and sisters around you. Or because you're an unbeliever and you know all the things you need to know, but you've just been reluctant about entrusting your life, your soul to Jesus. Come away from your immaturity. Entrust your soul fully to a good and faithful God. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope for you. Now, I've learned in recent days, we need to be careful that we don't offer opportunity to make qualifications on that statement. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope for you. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope for you. Your reluctance, your withholding certain aspects of your life is not some super spiritual sectioning off your life, reserving certain aspects for you. It's evidence of your immaturity and your reluctance to truly and fully entrust your soul to Jesus. Let us grow in grace and knowledge, entrusting our soul to a good and faithful God who by the very faith that saves us from our sin, sanctifies us, molds us, and makes us over in the image and likeness of his only son, Jesus Christ. Stop playing games with Jesus. Stop toying around with the gospel. Stop trying to find consolation for your soul spiritually with this Sunday morning experience while living your life according to an altogether different system every other day of the week. Stop trifling with the gospel. Grow in grace and maturity. And for those of you who are walking with gospel faithfulness, treasuring Jesus in your heart, press on. Press on and love him more tomorrow than you did today. The central theme of our passage, if there's anything our passage teaches, it's the danger of playing games with Jesus. I think sometimes people confuse the clarion call of the gospel. You understand what I mean by that? The clarion call of the gospel is is to everyone. That's what we mean by clarion call. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, the gospel is the promises to you and your children and your children's children, as many as the Lord our God will call, even those who are far off. That's the clarion call of the gospel. Come and believe on Jesus. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the clarion call. But sometimes people confuse that with this idea that we can be saved anytime we want, right? Like it's just, we just know, as long as we know we've got this in our bank of understanding and somewhere along the way we'll check the box before the end of our life and everything will be well with our soul. But that could not be further from the truth. Except the Spirit draw a man, he simply cannot come to the Father. Jesus himself said as much. The offer of salvation is good for one day and for one day only. Remember the context that's provided for our study here in chapters 4 and 5. It's back in chapter 3 and verse 7. The gospel is only good for one day. Today, if you hear his voice, 
Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me. They saw my works. They had all of these experiences, all of these encounters, all of these opportunities, and they failed. They failed to avail themselves of the rest that God had afforded them. How many will stand before the judgment bar of God having failed to avail themselves of the heavenly rest that God has afforded us in spite of all of our experiences, in spite of all of our encounters, in spite of all of the Bibles that pepper our shelves, in spite of all of the memory verses, in spite of all the Facebook posts, we will have failed to entrust our soul to Christ today, today, today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, but entrust your soul to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Come away from your unbelief and immaturity. Advance in the doctrines of the gospel. And dear brothers and sisters, press on, press on. Until your very last breath, press on to the glory of Christ. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, and for the privilege of giving consideration to these verses. I pray that what is often complex and difficult for us to read or understand, you would, Heavenly Father, make simple through the voice of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would grant each of us gospel clarity and understanding. I pray that we would cease from our religious games and truly entrust our souls to Jesus. I'm reminded of what verse 3 says in our passage, this we will do if God permits. Father, we pray that you would permit it so, that by the work and power of your Holy Spirit, you would affect salvation and maturity and sanctification in the hearts of all who are gathered here. As the good shepherd, would you call the names of your people? Lord, today as we hear your voice through the work of your spirit, would you help us, Lord, in our foolishness, not to harden our hearts as in rebellion. Seek out by your spirit and save to the uttermost. In Jesus' name, in his power and for his glory, amen.